Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast where we explore all things assisted reproductive technology, going beyond the technology to tell the real stories of lives changed. Um, I am Ellen Trackman. I am an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology law, and I'm honored to be here with my co-host and my sister, Jennifer White. Yay, it's me. (laughs) Yes, so I'm Jennifer White, and we do own Colorado Surrogacy, Montana Surrogacy, and New Mexico Surrogacy together and get the pleasure of helping people grow their families, which really not much more rewarding than getting a really excited phone call from somebody that they're at a really great and exciting point in this process. So, um, but helping us do that, um, especially the the expert we talked to today is Dr. Denchmond, and he is such a great person. I have actually met him at several conferences and heard him speak and, and just Every time I, I talk to him, I'm blown away by his kindness. Just he is a genuine, kind human being. So I really hope that comes through in the interview. I, I think it does, that just what a, an incredibly wonderful human being and also what an incredible expert and that he's on such some, some cutting edge of some things. So uh, without delay, we'd love for you to hear us talk to Dr. Denchmund. We are here today with renowned and respected fertility expert and doctor, Dr. Sayed Denishmond. Um, doctor, as we like to call Dr. D, in case I mispronounce that. But Dr. D, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jen and Ellen. Great to be here. Yes, we're we're excited. So so many things we want to talk about, but we first we're hoping to kind of talk about your background and your story of what led you to being this amazing doctor that now helps people have the family they always dreamed of. Um, where did it all begin? Were you <laughs> when you were a, when you were a small boy? <laughs> well, thank you. Exactly right. I can start very early if you wish, but um, the but day you were born. <laughs> It was it was very eventful, but uh, but no, I um, <laughs> I did most of my training at UCLA and went to medical school in New York City, and um, at the time um, in New York, I was exposed to a great many patients who were suffering from the um, AIDS epidemic, um, and of course, these were patients whose uh, immune systems were severely damaged because of the HIV virus. Um, and because of that immunocompromise, they were prone to many infections, including pneumonias. And, and I don't, I don't mean to date stamp you or anything, but how many years ago was this approximately? Because <laughs> it makes a diff- it does make a difference. And I mean, obviously, in where we were and what we know about H- HIV and AIDS as well. Absolutely, so. no. This was in the late '80s, early '90s, um, when unfortunately the only treatment, good treatment that we had for HIV and AIDS was ACT. And that was not a great treatment because the virus uh, sort of would learn to mutate um, and become immune to the effects of AZT and the medication we had that, at that time. Um, if you look at fast forward to now, um, we have such effective therapy for HIV that HIV has now become a chronic disease, meaning that it's no different than, let's say, high blood pressure and um, 
diabetes so that if patients take their medications or are compliant with their medications, uh, the HIV is kept in check, their immune system is not affected. And really, based on the, the latest study that was published uh, just a couple of years ago, the longevity for patients with HIV is, is very, very similar to patients uh, without the HIV virus. So I think that th- this has been an incredible victory um, for science, for medicine. And, um, and I think that I, I look back upon those days during medical school when I was a young medical student in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and we had uh, two floors in a very large metropolitan hospital in New York City devoted to AIDS patients. And, and the suffering that I saw, um, you know, with all the diseases because of the immunocompromise, because of the immunosuppression, uh, was something that left sort of an indelible impression in my mind. Um, and, and I think that, you know, un- unless you have seen that, um, it's, it's very difficult to gain a, a, a perspective as to how far we've come from that particular time. Um, where now, if patients, again, are uh, compliant with their medications, we have some terrific treatment for HIV, um, they are going to lead healthy lives and uh, have uh, normal longevity. Yeah, no, I say, and from, you know, a non-medical outside perspective, even just the stigma associated with has, it has come a long way. There still is a major stigma surrounding yes. AIDS and HIV, inappropriately so, but... It is amazing the difference the study has made and leapt through in you know twenty years. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at the, for example, uh, back in the early eighties, almost ninety five percent of um, young patients who received blood transfusions, for example, for lymphomas and, and leukemias, ended up uh, contracting the HIV virus. So it's 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 a it was a significant epidemic at the time. And, uh, you know, we, we've made incredible progress since that time in order to be able to, you know, to conquer um, the virus and, and make sure that uh, patients lead healthy lives. And really, the, there's been a sort of a concurrent um, advancement in the treatment of uh, fertility patients um, and patients who are um, positive for HIV in regards to eliminating the risk of transmission to the fetus, but also, let's say, in discordant couples and couples where the male is is positive, the female is negative, we've also eliminated the risk of transmission to, to the female patient. Um, so that's something, that, again, a, a very uh, great advance in the field of fertility. And of course, uh, it's, it's been as a direct result of the great medications we have now available to us. Right. So, so we have to backtrack just a little bit here because, you know, we wanted to go start over, start at your, your, your background, your history and, and people who listen like to hear a little bit about everybody. So you have, you, you went to medical school, you saw these horrible things and were really impacted by them. How did you, what led you for it? So obviously I assume, you know, you have a family and I, I say, I assume, cause I know you and I yes. had conversations about teenage angst already <laughs> this week. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. You know, right. so, so tell right. us a little bit about your background that has gotten you to where you are now, from from that point, from your from young medical student, you know your your journey forward professionally, and and you know as much personally as you want to chuck in there. We we don't need to know every detail, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, as as a young medical student, I was exposed to the field of infertility. 
Um, there was a wonderful um, fertility specialist that I worked with um, for part of my obstetrics and gynecology rotation in New York. And, and you know, the bond that she had with her patients and um, how patients came back with their children and, you know, seeing, the, you know, the sort of the inspiring um, work that she performed in terms of helping uh, intended parents and helping patients have their families um, really inspired me to become a fertility doctor. So I remember the the when I finished medical school um, and um, I went into my uh, residency at UCLA. I remember the first cesarean section that I uh, performed. I was pre- performing it with one of our attending professors at UCLA, and and I remember him handling the fallopian tube. Uh, um, and and I said to myself, "Oh, you know th- that fallopian tube really needs to be handled <laughs> with, with great uh, care, right?" And he said, "Are you going to be a fertility doctor?" Um, <laughs> Did so you, I said, in fact, I, I, I am going to be a fertility doctor. When you went to medical school, medical school, did you have something else in mind? Did you think you were going to go some, into some other specialty? You know, I, I approached medicine with uh, sort of the, um, the philosophy that I wanted to be the best physician I could be. I wanted to get a very broad-based education um, in medicine. I graduated medical school, devout Victorian in my medical school class, and I think it was just because of the commitment I had to wanting to be the best physician I could be overall. overall. And I knew that once I started my residency in a particular specialty, that I was not going to be exposed to, you know, other areas uh, such as, you know, cardiology or... Um, um, infectious disease or pulmonology. So I, I really used those years in medical school to become uh, as um, as well-rounded a physician as I could be. Because I knew that also no matter what field I went into, um, there was going to be uh, an element of general medicine that I need to draw on in order to be able to help my patients and help my intended parents. And so the, in the field of, for example, HIV, um, because of my interest and because of my uh, exposure to HIV and, and AIDS patients in New York, um, that's when I became interested in, in helping intended parents who are HIV positive uh, have their families. So I think uh, those medical school years were some of the most incredible years of my life. And, uh, and then starting with residency at UCLA, I knew from day one um, that I wanted to be a fertility doctor and I wanted to help uh, patients. I'm going to help uh, intended parents uh, realize their dream of having a family. That's great that you kept it open until you really saw what you what you wanted to do. I know in law school, I think it was one of our first classes where they said, raise your hand if you want to be a corporate attorney and raise your hand if you want to do litigation. It was weird. They never asked, raise your hand if you want to do assisted reproductive technology law. That, that just wasn't <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> Great. So you chose fertility. Um, where did your journey go from there? So uh, I finished my residency training at UCLA. Um, and uh, UCLA was really a, a, a wonderful place uh, to become trained. It's a tertiary hospital, um, lots of research opportunities. And sort of at that particular time, UCLA was at the forefront of, of research in many different areas, including HIV. Um, but we had, a, we had a great program in obstetrics and gynecology. I had some incredible mentors during my four years of residency in the OBGYN program. I was able to actually uh, perform immunology research during my residency years and published some work in immunology, which was great. Um, and then, uh, I just, because of my 
interest in infertility, I, I stayed at UCLA and uh, continued my fellowship at UCLA under the direction of Alan DeCherney, um, who is um, one of the you know sort of preeminent names in infertility. Someone who has trained many many doctors, and in fact, we have a DeCherney Society. Uh, we meet every year at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, and it's incredible how many fertility specialists he has trained uh, during his tenure at uh, at Tufts. I was going to ask, how big is that society? It's a large society. It's I think it has uh, somewhere around maybe 120, 130 members. Um, and during, these are all the uh, fertility specialists who trained either at Tufts, Yale University, and UCLA. Those are the three institutions where Dr. DeCherney was, uh, was chairman um, at, and he's currently at the NIH. So uh, that was inspirational to, to be able to work with someone as, as um as well known, as knowledgeable, and um, uh, as as prolific as him, um, it was during that time also where I became more and more interested in research. So we we started publishing some work in the field of infertility, um, and then once I finished my uh, fellowship training, there was an opportunity to start a practice in in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, at that particular time, you know, Las Vegas was underserved in terms of fertility. There were not, not that many fertility practices. Um, so I started my practice there and, and, and quickly became very busy, um, and, uh, joined, uh, a partner, um, Dr. Bruce Shapiro. And, and we uh, proceeded to not only become very busy clinically, but we also became uh, very busy in the field of research. And we published a great deal of work in, uh, in the field of fertility that I think also changed the face of fertility a little bit um, because it focused in on how we could improve um, success rates in in vitro fertilization, but also how can we can how can we make IVF safer? Um, we published a series of work, for example, that uh, uh, eliminated the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which is something that we see uh, without. Using a specific protocol, we could see that in, for example, egg donors or in patients who produce a very high number of eggs. Um, Sorry, and that's just for the the layman. If you could explain a little bit about what happens if if you do have the that syndrome, because I know it's really painful. But that's kind of all I know is that that what are the physical what what do women go through if that happens to them? Absolutely. So it's typically in patients who produce a very high number of eggs. Uh, and whose estrogen levels, because of the number of eggs, there's a direct correlation with estrogen levels are very high. These patients are at high risk for having ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, meaning that after the egg retrieval, after the the retrieval of the eggs, the there are hormones that are secreted by the ovaries, which make the, the blood vessels leaky. And so you have this sort of accumulation of fluid in the abdomen, uh, which causes this very bloating sensation. And sometimes if the, if the fluid is, is large enough, it can push up against the, the diaphragm and make uh, um, you know, taking deep breaths difficult. Um, because of that leaking of fluid, what ends up happening is that the kidneys are not as profused and they don't get as, as much um, fluid and blood supply as they need. So it's some, you know, so patients are at risk for having, um, 
effects on their kidneys. There's an increased risk of blood clots. Um, sometimes the, the fluid needs to be drained. Should we give a medical warning for like the, exactly, the right? weak stomach out there? Really Just FYI, <laughs> getting into some gross medical stuff. No, I didn't know. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, yeah. Sorry about that. I guess for me. Not for you. Know. you. Not for you. <laughs> Just for the rest of us. Ugh, leaky. Absolutely. Ugh. Absolutely. So, um, so you know, the, the culprit for the ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome is a, is a hormone called HCG, which we use as a trigger mechanism to cause the final maturation of the eggs. So right before we take the eggs out, about 34 to 36 hours before we retrieve the eggs, we give that HCG injection to cause that final maturation of the eggs and for the eggs to then be released into that a fluid-filled structure called a cyst or a follicle so that we can retrieve the eggs. Now, in, in, in the studies that we published, we, we found out that we can use a different hormone other than HCG and use a patient's own um, sort of endogenous hormone levels or hormone called LH and if they have a natural LH surge or an increase in their LH, um, that could cause that could uh, cause the eggs to mature in the same way that we gave HCG, but it prevents the the, the onset of hyperstimulation syndrome. So, um, in all the studies that we did, we didn't find a, a, even a single episode of hyperstimulation syndrome when we used this protocol. That's what I was going to ask. If like, what percentage did it go? Was it kind of on average before this protocol, and what is it now for people who are going through IVF or going through this procedure? If you look at studies, there are anywhere between 1% to 5% of patients going through IVF can suffer from ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And the patients who are at highest risk are the ones who have a high number of eggs um, forming within their ovaries. Um, so, you know, we eliminating that 1% to 5% uh, risk um, helps a great deal of patients because whilst they still may feel some bloating sensation, they won't get the full spectrum of hyperstimulation syndrome, which actually can last for many, many weeks, especially if a patient becomes pregnant after a fresh embryo transfer. And I understand you're still doing research. You're still working to be on the cutting edge of new procedures um, and making fertility treatments and testing better. Um, and I remember you mentioned one you guys were working on regarding a, the culture and testing. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, research is, is, is really exciting because I think that it's sort of advancing um, sort of the frontiers of medicine, being able to find uh, uh, newer techniques, safer techniques, more effective techniques in order to be able to help our patients have a family uh, is always exciting work. And so one of the areas that we're working on right now, and it's uh, one of the co-principal investigators of, is being able to um, change the protocol for PGS or PGT, which is pre-implantation genetic screening or testing. Um, currently, when an embryo gets to a particular stage called a blastocyst, um, we actually biopsy um, several cells from that outer um, edge of the embryo called a trophectoderm. And, and that biopsy means we have to pull cells out from the embryo. A very small percentage of embryos could be harmed by that procedure. It's a small percentage, but still, it, it's still a fairly invasive procedure to pull cells out from an embryo. Um, and, the, and the research we're working on right now is that um, because an embryo is, is a living organism, it also sheds uh, cells into the culture media, and uh, we now can analyze those cells that are shed uh, without touching the embryo, without doing a biopsy on the embryo, to be able to analyze the chromosomes of the embryo. Um, and in fact, we think that there's a possibility that 
the particular cells that are shed, they may be a better representation of the total embryo rather than the outer edge cells that we take right now from a biopsy. So this will be able to tell us about the chromosomal normality of the embryo without having to do a biopsy of the embryo. So I think that if things go well within maybe one to two years, the biopsy may be obsolete. I think that's that's great and it's huge because I, I I mean just for the non medical professionals when you explain oh they're doing genetic testing on the embryos and they're going to take a cell out I think that that terrifies people they're like oh you're taking, right they only my my baby in this embryonic stage only has a few cells and you're taking some of those and I mean right. my understanding is not the cells that become the baby it's like from the placenta cell so it's not as bad but still it's you know for for us non medical people it sounds kind of terrifying that these parts of the the embryo are being taken to do testing on it. So I'm excited about your, your new procedures. Well, and there's there's so much rumor and conjecture that goes around with that too. Like the it's anecdotal. People say, oh, well, there's a higher incidence of twins with PGS tested embryos and things like that. And I mean, it's not, I mean, whether it is or not, because I don't know the statistics or not, you know, of that, but it's still like, there's so much fear surrounding that testing that is out there. So if we can reduce that, that'd be fantastic. You're absolutely right. I think that, uh, um, and anytime you have to, you know, pull cells out, even if, if they're from the cells of the placenta, there's always a very small chance that the embryo could be harmed. And again, the, the chance of that is very low. Uh, but if we can develop techniques that are non-invasive and we don't have to uh, biopsy cells from the embryo itself, then that would be the, the you know, the most uh, um, efficacious and the safest way to go That's about fantastic. it. Fantastic. So you were working on that with Dr. Shapiro at in Las Vegas and. Oh, no, so I, on this on this PGS, yeah, on this chromosome an- analysis uh, with the newest uh, technique, uh, it's actually a multi-center trial. We're working with a, a few clinics and uh, a genetics institute, and um, so it, it'll be with our clinic here at San Diego Fertility Center. Right. And so that's what I was going to say is I was going to transition. I know that, you know, obviously things were wonderful and you were actually working at both places at the same time for a while, but you moved at some point from Las Vegas and now you're in San Diego. Yes. So um, a couple of years ago, um, you know, as my children were growing older and, you know, I have three daughters and um, most of my family lives in California. And of course, this is sort of where I grew up. And uh, my parents are in, in Southern California, my brother, my uh, my my in-laws. And so are you a surfer? because of the sort of... Th- you surf? <laughs> is, it all, is all that surfing? Is that- <laughs> I, I, I'm been known to occasionally surf, you know, when, uh, when the, the, the climate and the conditions are right. But, uh, but really it was the lure of the family that brought me over to back to California. And, and so we, you know, I had very good friends here at San Diego Fertility Center. We had, um, been friends for a long time, colleagues for a long time. I knew them well, and, um, there was an opportunity to, to move to San Diego Fertility Center and and join them here, so I, I took that opportunity, and it's been it's been wonderful for the last uh, um, couple of years. Uh, now I'm you know one of the partners at San Diego Fertility Center, and and uh, we're doing great work. Again, continued the uh, the research um, from, uh, from my times in, in Nevada and, um, we've had terrific pregnancy rates and, um, it's a great institution right here at San Diego. Uh, you know, we have a wonderful team of physicians, nurses, medical assistants, the, the, the team itself, you know, team of about, uh, over 70, uh, team members. And, uh, you, you realize that we, we can't do as physicians what we do unless we have a great team around us. Um, and I'm, oftentimes I think they don't get enough credit. Uh, so we, 
try to highlight their work uh, every chance we get. So it's it's been wonderful, and I've been able to. I'm, I'm blessed and and lucky enough to be able to help many intended parents around the world. You know, in in the last. Uh, uh, decade or so, more and more of my patients and more of my intended parents have come from outside the United States and Europe and Asia. Um, and also I've been able to help many um, intended fathers in, in the U.S., uh, outside the United States, uh, have their family using, uh, working with an egg donor and a surrogate. So um, lots of different work in different arenas and uh, certainly working with uh, men who are positive with HIV. That's what I was going to bring that right around. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we talked about kind of your interest in the area and what you witnessed, um, you know, a couple of decades ago about how traumatic and stigmatizing. Um, so I know your clinic works with HIV positive patients for IVF and fertility. Is that, is that universal or are you guys special in that respect? Does, does every clinic work with, with patients who are HIV positive? It's interesting because um, there was a study that was done actually where um, patients were told to call clinics and and find out whether those particular clinics worked with uh, HIV positive patients. Um, And uh, it was was interesting that based on that study, um, a significant number of clinics uh, did not offer services for HIV positive patients. And I think in that particular study, it was a, a study that was uh, published in March of 2018 by Leach, L-E-E-C-H, et al. Uh, and they looked at uh, 140 IVF clinics in 15 different states. And they found that only about, uh, um, probably just less than half of those clinics actually offered services oh, to wow. HIV positive patients. Yeah. So it's definitely an area where I think that um, experience and um, being able to really uh, know a great deal about the virus and, and the you know, modes of transmission and how we can eliminate uh, the risk of transmission helps a great deal. And I think it's uh, maybe for many clinics, it's not a, m- a matter of you know, whether it, you know, they're uh, of, of stigma or um, a prejudice against those who are positive for HIV, po- uh, HIV virus, but maybe it's just a experience. You know, they, they don't have as much experience in the field, and so they feel uncomfortable taking care of patients who are HIV positive. So I do think that there, there needs to be a great deal of education um, and training in this arena so that we can eliminate the stigma that's associated with it. And we, we definitely see that in terms of um, a gay couple who, where one might be HIV positive and them needing to turn to a gestational carrier and kind of this outside view of who would ever be a gestational carrier with an HIV positive couple? What's the risk of transmission? Why would she put her life at stake? And can you speak to that? Like what, is, what is the risk to her? Is, it, is there a risk? Absolutely. <clears throat> there have never, there has never been a reported um, transmission of the HIV virus, um, whether it's using in, intrauterine insemination or HIV. And I'll cite a couple of studies that are really important. Um, there was a st- study by uh, published by Zaffer, S-A-Z-A-F-E-R. And she looked at, it was a, um, a study that looked at uh, over close to 12,000 patients who had undergone both intrauterine insemination or in vitro fertilization where the male was positive for HIV and the female was negative. And what they found was that there was not a single case of transmission of the virus to the, to the female patient, nor a vertical transmission to the fetus. And that's close to 12,000 cases. And in all of these cases, um, the, the sperm was washed uh, based on the standard protocol of sperm washing. Um, and therein lies the, 
the way in which the uh, the virus is eliminated from in terms of the the potential risk, and that is that you know HIV can be detected um, in semen, uh, and even in men who have um, uh, negative or zero titers in their blood. Uh, meaning that there is no evidence of the HIV virus in the blood, uh, according to one French study, about 6.6% of those men could still have some uh, virus in the semen. Um, so it's a very small percentage. So you always start off with men who are compliant with their medications, men who have undetectable viral titers or viral uh, virus in their blood. Uh, and then what you do is you you wash and concentrate the sperm um, to make certain that after the wash, that the only cells that are left are the sperm cells. Because if you look at the HIV virus in semen, it either can be free-floating uh, as free HIV particles, or it could be uh, as infected immune cells like leukocytes or these uh, immune cells. And so if you eliminate those, and you wash and concentrate, and you're, all you're left with is the actual sperm cells, then really you're, you have eliminated the risk of transmission of the virus. Um, so we have a great deal of um, research and studies, and this dates back all the way back to 1991-92. Um, there was an Italian uh, fertility doctor, Samprini, uh, he had over 1,100 cases of intrauterine insemination where he used the wash uh, technique and not a single case of transmission to the female patient or a vertical transmission to the fetus. Um, and this was in the field of intrauterine insemination. And in vitro fertilization, what we're doing is in the lab, we are, are using single sperm and injecting single sperm inside the eggs. So the, the risk is 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 essentially zero when we do that, when we've already done the, the wash. Now, I'll talk to you a little bit more about what we do even further yes, to, to give yeah, sort of comfort and confidence to gestational carriers and surrogates um, uh, to absolutely eliminate any risk uh, of transmission of the virus. Sure. And, and I, I am a little curious before you go into that. Um, are your patients surprised? Because I, I think I was that that really the risk was was zero that I that it is so safe and I think many people don't think that way so I, I'm wondering if when you counsel patients and tell them no you can still have a child and we can do this safely how they react well I think you know it, it there's always that stigma and that fear uh, when when patients initially hear um, about uh, you know the HIV virus and when you know when, when someone's HIV positive. Um, I think it just takes time and you have to sit down, you have to, you have to educate uh, surrogates, uh, educate intended parents um, and colleagues about um, you know, all the studies that are out there that really give you a great deal of confidence and comfort that this is a safe procedure. And we, will, we would never put the, the surrogates' uh, health at risk the surrogate's health is paramount um, in our minds. Whenever we're um, going through a surrogacy journey, and you know we're doing embryo transfers, uh, the whole push towards single embryo transfer, and uh, and making sure that we you know decrease or minimize any risk to the health of the surrogate. So the health of the surrogate is is paramount importance. Um, but I think that when when you're familiar with these studies, um, you will find that uh, really. The, the risk is zero because of the fact that we have since 1991 ample evidence 
uh, ample treatment cycles within with insemination, with in vitro fertilization, and since 1991, thousands and thousands of cycles, and not a single case of transmission. Um, we go even one step further. And so in conjunction with our collaboration with the Bedford Research Institute in Boston, what we do is we actually take the sperm sample unwashed. And these are in men who have zero viral titers in their blood. So uh, blood levels are obtained um, for, for several years and, and, and the history of those particular men. We, we get their records. We make sure that the virus has been undetectable in their blood for a long period of time. And because of that French study that showed about 6.6% of men could still have some virus in their semen, even if they were negative in their blood, what we do is we take the sperm unwashed and we take half of that semen, actually, uh, aliquot, and we take half of that and we send it to a genetics institute and we look for the DNA of the virus because a DNA test of the virus for HIV is the most sensitive test to detect the virus. Only and only if the DNA test comes back negative, then what we do is we take the other half of that semen sample and we do the wash protocol. And, and then we concentrate the sperm and freeze the sperm and then subsequently use it for fertilization of the eggs. So it's almost like you have an extra step here where you, you, you're you not only satisfied with just washing the sperm, because certainly there's never been a case of a transmission of the virus if you just do the wash, but we actually take it even one step further and say, well, we're going to take the semen sample, the unwashed semen sample. We're going to test for the detection of the virus with the most sensitive test that there, there exists there, which is the DNA test. And if and only if that test is negative, then we use the other half of that uh, semen sample, then we do the multiple wash protocol, and then freeze individual sperm to be used in IVF. So therefore, um, you know, the, the risk was zero before, we're, we're taking even one extra step. Um, so it's, it's almost like you have a system of sort of multiple checks um, to, to ensure that there's absolutely no risk. My favorite phrase, trust but verify, right? <laughs> that falls exactly right in there. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> right. And I, and right. I can imagine this is incredibly and, life-changing for your patients. Do you have any particular stories of patients where who that really stick out in your mind of treating them and making that difference for them? Um, in terms of just their concerns about the risk of the fetus or in terms of them coming in thinking, you know, there's no chance I can have a, have a child likely cause I have this disease and then oh, the I end, see. having a healthy baby. I think it's, I think it's incredible. I, I think, uh, there was a case I think I may have shared with you when I was meeting with, um, in Europe with, uh, intended parents, uh, uh, one of whom was positive for the HIV, and you know they were talking about uh, embryo donation as a way of of having their children and adoption, and we had the discussion, and you know I discussed with them this whole the protocol that we have in place, and when the the intended parent uh, found out that he could possibly have his own genetic child, I mean there was just this uh, overwhelming sense of emotion and and tears welled up in his eyes and and it was incredible uh, you know i think tears welled up in my eyes as well because it was just such an uh, emotional moment to to be able to you know let someone know that they're able to have their genetic child if they wish um so that was that was incredible and and there there are many stories like that and i think being able to um give that uh, news and offer that service to those who 
want to have uh, to go through this journey, uh, I, I think we're, we're in great position to do so. And I think we're very blessed and lucky to be able to, um, you know, understand and, and have a, a great deal of experience in this arena to be able to offer these services. The big question is, did they have the family? Did they have the children? That's, that's the, yes, they did. Actually, hey. uh, they ended up, uh, they ended up having, uh, um, on the, on single embryo transfer. We had a, uh, a, a pregnancy on the first transfer and uh yes they ended up having their family that they wanted so it's it's a it's, it's an it's an incredible story um you know if if you rewind back to many many years ago when there was such a stigma associated with hiv this day would have been unimaginable this day would have been un, unthinkable um and yet here we are talking about uh uh, HIV being just a chronic disease, much like uh, as we talked about, uh, you know, high blood pressure. If you treat it, you, you, you're compliant with your medications, you can have a healthy life, um, no different than anybody else. Healthy life and a healthy baby. Uh, so, I, you know, I'd love to circle back, and I know we didn't talk about talking about this, but I, I'm, I feel really strongly, and I love single embryo transfer, so I'd love to hear your your thoughts on single embryo transfer and why that's... <sighs> Yeah, I know, but I, I like to hear it from a doctor too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, there's, there, there are always those intended parents who love uh, the idea of having a, a twin pregnancy, having two children um, you know, with one transfer, and, uh, and they're, they're, they have their family. You know, they, have, they, wanted, they always wanted two children. They can have a twin pregnancy. And uh, they come into the consultation with, with that sort of um, uh, desire, agenda. Uh, and, and I think that what my responsibility is that I tell them specific cases and stories about um, how some of these pregnancies can, can end up in terms of you know, premature birth and, and diabetes and high blood pressure and, and complications such as that. Um, so that... It's, and it's not just the complications of prematurity where a baby can be born. Babies can be born at, uh, you know, 30 weeks or 28 weeks. And there are short-term issues and, and short-term complications, but there could be long-term complications. And that is, is such a significant stress for the parents, for the, for the children. Um, so I am a big advocate of single embryo transfer for the health of the surrogate and health of, of the children. Um, so my responsibility is that once I have a consultation, despite the fact that the antennas are going to come into the consult thinking that having a twin pregnancy is a wonderful thing, um, I, my responsibility is really to, to highlight all those potential complications that can occur. And that's the reality of, of twin pregnancies is, is that despite our best efforts, even if we make the best efforts in terms of finding the ideal surrogate, or even a surrogate who's had a previous uh, a twin pregnancy, um, we cannot eliminate the risk of preterm labor. And if preterm labor is, is you know, mild, meaning that it's somewhere between you know, 34 to 36 weeks or 32 to 36 weeks, um, where the lungs have mostly developed and the risk of complications is less, um, there's no way that we can uh, predict which particular patients are going to have a higher risk or a lower risk, or, and we cannot eliminate that risk. You can have a surrogate who had a uh, uncomplicated twin delivery, and in the next 
twin delivery. She could have a, a preterm labor and delivery at 28 weeks, and the babies could stay in the, in the intensive care unit for, for months, have short-term problems, and develop long-term problems as well. Yeah, we, we hear a lot of people who turn around and say, oh, but it's cheaper to have twins, you know, that kind of like the, oh, just because we get two babies at once. And right. that's always, that's always at least my easy argument back is that, hey, if you spend, if you have a child in the NICU for, you know, 12, 14, you know, 16 weeks, even longer, depending on how bad complications are, you know, that you are not saving any money, believe me. Exactly right. Exactly right. Not to mention complications in their lifetime. Correct. If they're born that early. Yes. And, and it's, it's, you know, the, the amount of the, the degree of stress that, that intended parents can go through and, um, you know, the short term stress and in intensive care unit. Um, and it's, it's not just imagine, you know, you have intended parents who are going to have to uh, take time off from work, take time off from their, their, you know, regular routine life and, uh, sort of be in, in the intensive care unit, um, attending to their, to their children. So you can't put a price on, on that. And, and I think that uh, I think for our work together as colleagues, um, you and I, we just have to find ways in which we can um, promote single embryo transfer, but also try to maybe make the second journey for the second child, um, you know, more accessible, less expensive. And and I think there are there are ways we can do that. So I, we would rather do that than than have uh, uh, you know put the you know, the onus on surrogates to, to carry a twin pregnancy, you know, put their health at risk, put the children's health at risk. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's just, uh, if we can spend that, if I can spend an extra 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes on during a consultation, concentrating on this, uh, notion of single versus double embryo transfer and, uh, be able to convince intended parents that really single embryo transfer is the way to go, then I feel that I've, I've done my duty and I, you know, I've, I've been a responsible physician. Uh, Ellen and I both can speak from experience having had children of our own in NICUs for varying amounts of time for different reasons. Uh, it is not a fun place to be or any place that you want to be, you know? So yeah, we're, right. we're big on. I agree with you. And you know, the lungs are not fully developed. The brain is not fully developed. Many organs are not fully developed. And so they're at risk. All of these organs are at risk. Despite the, the incredible advances in the intensive care unit, um, there are still significant risks uh, with the development of these organs that can have long-term effects, you know, on the children. Well, and it's an emotional risk as an intended yes. parent too. You know, you're watching your yes. child and you're not able to hold, care for, parent your child that is now outside and alive in this world, which is what you wanted, all you wanted, and you just want to be able to take care of them. <laughs> exactly right. And I think that you know, taking away the disincentives for single embryo transfer is, is you know, should be our, uh, one of our primary uh, focuses. And that is that, for example, um, when we developed a, a program in which if the first single embryo transfer does not work and we have... Um, extra frozen embryos, then subsequent embryo transfers don't uh, incur any additional fees, any additional clinic fees, meaning that, you know, with, with the fees that, that intended parents have already paid, um, that pays for unlimited frozen embryo transfers until there's a delivery of a child. Um, so then you, you take away that disincentive of, of single embryo transfer. Um, so, and, and, you know, for the, from the, from the clinic perspective and from, from many agency perspectives, a second journey, a sibling journey is going to be significantly less expensive than the first. So just trying to, you know, 
concentrate on those areas where we can uh, make make the path to a sibling journey much easier and less expensive is is something that we can do. And on the other uh, side, we can make the single embryo transfer even more attractive. That's fantastic. I love that. So how many how many baby pictures and holiday cards do you get every year? <laughs> you know, I, I'll tell you something that's really fun for me, and that is that, um, you know, I have a, a, a Facebook account that is uh, sort of part of my work account. So most of the my friends on that account are my patients. That's how I keep in touch with their children. They're growing up. And um, you know, every year on my birthday, um, I get all of these birthday wishes that not only from the, from the parents, but I, I've had, you know, children hold up signs, happy birthday, Dr. D. Thank you for, for, um, may, you know, helping me come to this world. I mean, it's just absolutely lovely. I, I remember one time when I, I got this, uh, birthday wish from, um, this lovely young girl of, of, uh, uh, you know, seven, eight. And she was saying, you know, happy birthday, Dr. D. Um, you know, I'll be starting first grade this year. Thanks to you. You know, I mean, it, it, it just was so touching and so emotional for me, you know, and, uh, I, I think that's one way I keep, keep in touch with intended parents and with, with parents around the world and, um, and get to see their children grow up. And, you know, when, when you look back at the end of the day and, and you, you, you're retired one day, uh, and you're old and gray, um, I, I, I feel like I would love to go through those photos and, and pictures and, and feel that, uh, you know, there's something that I did that, that made a difference in, in some people's lives. So I think, I think that's, that's something to look forward to. Oh, I love it. Yeah, no, we, we know you make a great difference and you know, that just from our dealings with you, you know, professionally, we've talked to you a bunch of times in other, other venues and we so appreciate that. So we really, really appreciate that you, make a difference in this world and that you were willing to come on here and talk to us about that difference as well. And Ellen, Jen, I have to tell you that without uh, both of you, uh, it's not possible because it's, it's only because of the hard work of, uh, uh, you, Ellen and you, Jen, uh, that I'm able to do what I do this is a team effort. Um, you are, uh, my team members, my colleagues, uh, and together we band together. We, uh, accompany intended parents through this journey and, um, and it's incredible. I mean, both of you have stellar reputations, uh, and have helped so many, um, parents, uh, in the surrogacy journey. So it's an inspirational work that you do. And I am, we love babies. That's really what it comes down to. We yeah. just want, we just want to hold babies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Go team. Oh, so thank you so much, Dr. D. We Absolutely. really appreciate that you came on and talked to us. So hopefully we'll, we'll bring you on again, talked about something else, uh, maybe a, a longer dissertation on single embryo transfer. <laughs> my, pl- my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to work with both of you. And, and I hope that uh, this was uh, informative and um, would love to come on again uh, in, in, in your show. Wonderful. Thank you. Take care. Lesson of the day. So I think the lesson talking to such an impressive expert in the area is to keep in mind this area is changing so fast and it does amazing things. So even though 
you know, right now we're like, oh, only this is possible and this is the way it works. I mean, I think even his, just talking about, you know, HIV, um, positive persons being able to have a child safely, as well as like new technology of how they test embryos by using the cells sloughed off in the Petri dish. I mean, it is incredibly amazing how the technology continues to change. And I think it'll just rapidly um, and exponentially continue in that fashion. So whatever you're used to now, whatever you learn now, just like blink or like fall asleep for the night and it'll all be different tomorrow. Throw it away in a few weeks. Yeah, exactly. It'll all be done. So So most importantly, you should listen to this podcast to keep up with all those changes and find out what's next. Right. We should definitely have it come back (laughs) in like six weeks because it'll be totally different, right? Right. (laughs) So um, yeah, so we've really uh, totally blown away by him. And you know, we are always blown away by people who uh, love to like us on iTunes and give us reviews and tell us how great we are. Um, also, you can tell us that we're not great. We're okay with that too. We, we have thick skins, um, but we also- We'll only cry a little bit. Privately, just in private. So uh, we also really love to hear from people. Um, we have a phone number that you can call in and leave us messages. It's 303 303- Nine nine seven one nine zero three. So please, please call, leave us comments. We we really love to hear from people. A huge, huge thank as always to Chris at Work at Bird Studios, who makes us sound good and cuts out the crying whenever we do it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we really appreciate him, and we appreciate all of you listening. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.